If you need a Bible, uh, we've got ushers willing to pass those out to you. Just raise your hand and they'll bring them to you. We also have some pencils there if you want to use those with the note sheets. Uh, we haven't really been passing out note sheets, so I didn't print out enough for everybody because uh, people haven't been taking as many as they used to need before, but we might be printing out more in the future to pass out to folks. Again, that's always an optional thing. If you don't want to use the note sheet, don't let it be a distraction to you, but we hope that it might be helpful as uh, you try to keep track of the things that you learn on a Sunday morning. You want to think of those things throughout the week, so take that note sheet, put it into your Bible, and look back on it as you process what you learned throughout the next several days. It's good to see Joan Bell back. Hi, Joan. So glad you're here today. We've been praying a lot for our sister Joan, who's been going through a roller coaster of health issues, and so faithful is Terry, her daughter, to take care of her and, and to love her back to good health. So we're very, very happy to see you here today with us. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so you can turn your scriptures there. In dealing with marriage and its place in the Christian life, 1 Corinthians 7 spends a good amount of ink helping us to understand how we have to contend with our passions. Now, passion is, is defined as a feeling of intense enthusiasm or desire for someone or something. Passions are things that human beings have to deal with on a regular basis. We are undeniably creatures of passion. The things that we are passionate about tend to dominate our thoughts. They tend to take up a good portion of our resources and our energy. Consider for a moment how today's culture thinks of the idea of passion. Passion is almost universally seen as a positive today. Most people admire when others are passionate about something. Passion is usually associated with achievement of greatness. If someone is passionate about something, they are seen as more likely to have the drive to achieve the goals that they have or, or to realize their dreams. Think of the ways that we might typically try to describe our passions. We describe our passions like a blazing fire or like a raging storm or maybe like a whirlwind that sweeps us away. These are elements of nature that have great force and power, and make no mistake about it, our passions can be a powerful thing. But these elements of nature, it's ironic that we use them to describe our passions because these elements of nature can also be quite destructive, can't they? A raging inferno can level a forest. A whirlwind can topple a building. A raging storm can send floods and can wreak havoc. Our passions are like that as well. So passion itself isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. Whether it is good or bad is determined by the object of that passion and the extent to which passion impacts the person who is experiencing it. A person's passion might take the form of intense love for their spouse. That's a noble kind of passion. It might take the form of loyalty. It might take the form of an idealism towards a cause or a belief. But passion can just as easily take the form of jealousy or revenge or obsession. The object of one's passions and the extent to which one allows their passions to control them will determine whether those passions are to be seen as good or bad. You might even remember that as we approach Easter Sunday, which is it's not too far away. Jesus' willingness to die on the cross for our sins, sometimes referred to as the passion of the Christ. Jesus was so intent on saving sinners from judgment that he was willing to leave the comforts of heaven to come and be with us to dwell in the human form of a body, to walk among us and to keep the law perfectly in a way that we could never do it, and then to give that life as he suffered and died and bled on the cross for our sin. So as 1 Corinthians 7 progresses through verse 9 this morning, Paul will explain 
how a grounded understanding of our passions should inform our decision to stay single or to be married. You might recall last week in verses uh, seven, verses, or sorry, chapter seven, verses one through five, that we spoke about the importance of the marriage covenant and how men and women are to stay faithful to each other in that marriage covenant, especially in expressing their love in physical ways. So in verse 6 through 9 today, we're going to build upon what we learned last week. Paul's going to share one more point in regards to glorifying God in marriage. And then secondly, Paul's going to show that glorifying God apart from marriage is important and possible as well. The third point we'll make today is that Paul's going to explain some are especially gifted to singleness in a way, uh, in, as a way of life. And then fourthly, Paul is going to caution that one should choose marriage if their passions are hard to control. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 9 this morning as we study together as a church. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from the Lord, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Would you take a moment with me and bow your heads? We ask God's blessing over our learning this morning. God, we pray that as we humble ourselves and come before what you have taught us through the Apostle Paul, that you would make room in our hearts and minds to receive this well and to keep it forever. God, we want to know what you desire for us to know. We want to be aware of the things that you have opened our eyes to. So help us to not be distracted this morning. Help us to not be ignorant of the things that you would lay before us. Help us to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. And part of that quick to listening means that we're willing to learn. We're willing to be shaped by your mighty word. And so I pray, Lord God, that your scripture would do just that today. Help us to glorify you also in the way that we respond to it. May our hearts be obedient, and may we be not just hearers of your word, but doers also. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul begins by sharing one more important point about marriage and how we might glorify God through marriage. In verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. If you were to just pick up the scripture and start reading at verse 6, you might not know whether he was talking about what he had just said or what he was about to say when he says, as a concession, I say this. Because of time restraints, last week we needed to break at verse 5. That's as far as we could get. But the first verse of the chapter that we're going to be looking at today, or these first verses that we looked at last week, are still in mind in the chapter that were the parts of the chapter we're going to be looking at today. Last week, the Apostle Paul corrected a train of thought that some part of the Corinthian church was beginning to believe. They had this idea in their minds that since sexual immorality was a threat to spiritual health there in Corinth, and that many of them in particular were struggling with it, that maybe it would be better not to engage in sexual relations at all, even within the bounds of Christian marriage. Paul lays that idea to rest in the first five verses, explaining that a godly marriage is not a danger to sexual immorality, it is actually a defense against sexual immorality to those who are called to it. God gave man and woman an acceptable and pleasing way to direct those kinds of passions towards their spouse according to the marriage covenant that God has provided for us. Now, since in marriage, the man's body is not his own, 
but his wife's. And the woman's body is not her own, but her husband's. Then married people should not deny their spouses the physical intimacy that is the exclusive blessing of the marriage covenant. Even if a husband and a wife mutually agree to take some time off of that blessing, it should only be by consent and for a short amount of time so that they might seek the Lord and grow spiritually. So verse 6 actually refers back to those temporary times of abstinence between a husband and a wife that Paul said were okay for a time and with agreement. Yet the principle still remains. If you are married, honor your spouse by not denying your body to them in intimacy. It might be okay for married couples to take a break for a while, but that is the exception, not a rule. Those brief times of abstinence are not to dominate the characteristics of a Christian marriage. Now, not everyone is married. So verses 7 through 9 turn their attention to the fact that marriage is not the only means by which we can glorify God. Paul's going to show here that glorifying God apart from marriage is important too. So there is a very, uh, there, there's a very viable option here. We can either be married or we can remain single. Paul, in fact, says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, what was Paul's marital status? Verse 7 through 8 clears it up if there's any doubt at all. Paul was a single man. Though we hear about other apostles and church leaders having wives, there is no record of a church, or I'm sorry, there's no record of a wife or a child ever being linked to Paul. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul never had a wife. Perhaps later in his life he took a wife. We don't know. Before Christ saved Paul, Paul was a Pharisee a religious affiliation that put great emphasis on the law of God. And as a Pharisee, Paul had a high view of marriage. We know that because he preached the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. The Old Testament heralds marriage as a way of fulfilling the original covenant that God made with Adam and repeated with Noah. Now, many think that Paul was likely either a member of the Sanhedrin or was hoping to one day serve in that elected body. The Sanhedrin was an assembly of 70 respected Jewish men who acted as like the Supreme Court of Israel. They judged important matters before the people, and they did so according to the Old Testament law. We might get hints of this at Galatians 1, verse 14, where Paul admits, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So it's possible that Paul was on this fast track to try to become a part of the Sanhedrin. If that was the case... In order to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. It was a requirement. Therefore, many speculate that Paul may have been a married man at one time in his life before Christ found him, a man whose whose wife likely passed away, leaving him a widower. We don't know that for sure. It's speculation, but it's plausible. Surely, Paul has some wonderful things to say about marriage in his letters, and though we also know that God inspired those writings and could have very well helped Paul to write some things he didn't have experience about himself personally. Paul is nonetheless very positive about marriage and, and gives us some great direction about it. Paul's marriage is only speculation and it is not entirely relevant anyway. Either way, he is now declaring that he wishes that everyone was able to be as single as he is now at the time that he writes this letter. Now, straight away, we should see by that alternative that marriage is not a universal command to Christians. There is sometimes a stigma towards people who praise the the name of Jesus Christ, yet walk through their whole lives without getting married. 
Either that stigma is real or is it perceived. Sometimes people who are single and have not taken a wife or a husband feel like they don't quite fit into the body of Christ, and that's a real shame because the body of Christ is a diverse place, and those who are married should feel just as comfortable as those who are not married. The universal command is not to be married. The universal command is to glorify God in your body, no matter who you are or what station of life God has called you to. That should happen whether your body is joined to another in covenant marriage or not. And so Paul was doing a great job of glorifying God in his body, despite the fact that he was a single man. You know who else was single? A guy named Jesus, right? Despite recent theories by professional make-believer Dan Brown, Jesus never married and had no children. He was, in sin, was he in sin for neglecting such a high calling? Obviously he was not because Christ is completely pure of sin and, and free of all unrighteousness. So it is in no way uh, an ignorance of God's law to choose to remain single. Obviously singleness is not a practical requirement for everyone. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Even though Paul says, I wish that you all could be as single as I am and serve the Lord with such commitment and dedication, that would have been a practical picture for all the believers for two reasons. First of all, God is the one who ordains marriage. God loves marriage. It is a gift to people, not a curse. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So God cares for marriage. It is important to Him. We don't want to think that in the New Testament era, in this new covenant, God has stripped that blessing away from us. God instructs us throughout His Word to cherish marriage and to enjoy it. And so it does not need to be set aside. Will it be set aside one day? Yes, it will in heaven. If you read in Matthew 22, Jesus clarified and, and let the people know that when we get to heaven, marriage is no longer a covenant that is bound, uh, that binds two people together. The covenant of marriage is for our time here on earth. But we, friends, are not in heaven right now. We are on earth. And so marriage as a covenant has not yet been set to the side. So God ordains marriage. That's one of the reasons why not everyone can be single. And secondly, the kingdom of heaven grows in part by godly marriage. When you look at the front row and you see six little Neveses up here and five little Abedas over here, you know that part of our church growth strategy is to reproduce. We're going to make a whole bunch of children, and then we're going to pre preach the word to them. We're going to show them the love of Christ, and we're going to help them to grow in an environment where they can see the practical and real love of Jesus. The Great Commission is not only a call to display the gospel to strangers. Think about that. It is a call to display the gospel within Christian families as well. As God's people raise up children in godly homes, love and truth is modeled right before their eyes. The worship of Jesus has given a real-life example for those little ones. And many of them will respond in faith as they grow up in light of that grace. Parents, are, are you grabbing hold of your calling to show Christ to your kids? No, we don't have the power to save them ourselves, no matter how much effort and attention we put into that calling. Nevertheless, it is our calling as moms and dads to give our children every opportunity to see the truth of Scripture and to watch as we live it out faithfully as an example to them. If all believers were single, we would not see the training up of the next generation within families the way that we do today. So, to summarize, marriage is not set to the side, but there is an alternative course. Paul wishes that more would take that course, but marriage is a perfectly viable way to love the Lord and to glorify Him in your body. 
Listen to what Samuel Renahan says about this. He says, most people have a natural desire for intimacy of heart as well as intimacy of body. And through marriage, the natural and good desires and appetites that they have can be expressed and satisfied within a completely pure environment and no sin results. So we can see that marriage is a wonderful tool that God gives us as a defense against sexual immorality. But there are advantages to being single. As Paul is going to elaborate in greater detail later on in this chapter, a single person is in the unique position of having very little else to be personally responsible for. Now, there are exceptions. A person who is not married might feel compelled to care for their elderly parents. They might feel compelled to raise a sibling if their parents were in an accident or if there was a need for them to step in. But for the most part, a single person does not have someone else to serve or provide for on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. No children of their own to support and raise. No list of others who are depending upon them and whose lives are intricately interwoven with theirs. To some, that independence might describe loneliness. I know there are many who do not have a husband or a wife who yearn for that kind of a blessing. But to others, that independence describes opportunity. When we are free of those godly responsibilities... It is undeniable. We have more time, we have more energy that we might choose to spend serving God and spending our life in direct service to our Savior, loving Him passionately with an intention and a focus. Consider the adventure of Paul's life and the many different trials and tribulations and ups and downs that he went through. Imagine if Paul, who on several instances was shipwrecked at sea, on several instances was arrested for preaching the gospel, on several instances had to to get up and leave because of threats upon his life. A man who traveled from city to city, establishing a church, bringing up the leadership there so that they might be led by faithful men, and then moving to a new location so he could start a new church. This circuitous kind of lifestyle, can you imagine living that if Paul had been married to a, a, a wife and had little children at home to care for? It would have been very difficult for him to be faithful in one calling of his life and also remain faithful in the secondary calling of his life. For a more recent example, think for a minute about how difficult it must be for Pastor James Coates, this pastor in Canada right now, who is incarcerated simply for preaching the word of God and refusing to tell his church not to come and gather for public worship. He's got a wife. He has children. And if you've not heard uh, any of the things that his wife has said in interviews, she's a, a fantastic example of faith. You should, should read what Aaron has to say about the trial they're going through right now. It's beautiful to see that church family, but also that immediate family stand by James in his fight to make known the, the difficult things that are going on in Canada. But can you imagine how difficult it would be to be Paul and to also have a wife and children? Even before you get married... Until you find a suitable spouse, you have a unique availability in your life that can be leveraged to help you not only grow in the Lord, but to be a blessing to His church and to pour yourself wholeheartedly into the prime purpose of life, which is to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. I was uh, sitting with a sister on Friday. We had just met a new person, and we were getting to know each other. And the gal asked my sister in Christ, she said, Are you married? And... My sister in Christ simply smiled and pointed her finger to heaven. 
She's a single woman. She doesn't have a husband to tend to. And her, in her heart, in her mind, the closest thing she has to that is she's married to the Lord God. Jesus Christ is her prime love, and there is no other relationship that prevents her from seeking him and pursuing him wholeheartedly with the completeness of her passion. If God has given you the gift of singleness, I encourage you, praise him for it, because it comes with an inherent lack of encumbrance. I want to take a second to especially address young people here. Because when you graduate from high school and you venture out into the world, you're going to find yourself in a unique crossroads of life. You might have several years in which you have no family to care for and tend to, but you do have a kind of independence in which you are now, as an adult, able to do and go and to obey the Lord in radical ways. I know so many people automatically have their future set out. I'm going to graduate from high school. I'm going to go to college or I'm going to get into trade school or I'm going to join the military. I've got all these plans. I need to rapidly progress towards uh, financial independence for myself. And those are noble goals. But what if we step back and take a minute to look at our lives and say, well, I've got this unique oasis of time and availability. What if I apply that period of my time, of my life, to just passionately wholeheartedly serving the Lord God and just giving him my undivided attention. Even if the Lord calls you from that into marriage one day, don't you think that time of just spending yourself as a servant to the Lord, unhindered by other responsibilities, don't you think that that would set you up well to be a better servant to your husband or your wife later in life? I think young people would really be blessed if they would consider using that time as a wonderful opportunity in a unique transitional point in their lives to serve the Lord God, to go on mission, to care for the people of their community with an unhindered passion. So don't waste your singleness, young people. Don't waste it on the fleeting passions of life like so many people think they're going to do. Others might think, now when I'm young and I don't have a wife or kids to tell me what to do or not to do, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be wild. I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a sabbatical from my faith. I'm going to get into the world. I'm going to try all these sinful things that for so long my mom and dad have told me I should not do. And then once I get all that out of my system, then I'll settle down and then I'll start a family and then I'll get serious about my faith in the Lord. Friends, if you're not, if you're not serious about your faith in the Lord now, what makes you think you're going to be serious about your faith in the Lord in five years, in 10 years? If Christ is your Lord, he's not your Lord someday. He's your Lord now. So do not waste your youth. Paul urges both the unmarried and the once married to consider this approach. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. <clears throat> this is uh, particularly important, I think, for us to think about when you consider the impact of losing a spouse. To lose your husband or your wife to whom you have been yoked to oftentimes for decades, is without a doubt a very difficult weight upon the heart. It is possible that the Apostle Paul might have felt that himself if he was one, at one time married and had lost his wife. But with every door that God shuts, the Holy Spirit tends to open another door. Rather than live in despair of what we have lost, Paul here urges widows and widowers to consider the new freedom that they have to worship and serve God, our first love with even more focus and vigor than they had been able to do so before. We don't have to feel compelled to marry. We don't have to feel compelled 
to remarry. Our universal charge is to glorify God in our body. If we are married, we can glorify God together with the spouse that he has provided. If we are single, we can utilize the flexibility and freedom of that station of life to glorify God in a more concentrated and focused way. But if you do choose to serve God on your own, apart from that covenant of marriage, doing so does not automatically erase the passionate desire for companionship that godly marriage can be a remedy for. In fact, not everyone can manage the strain of living on their own apart from a spouse. So the third point that Paul is making in these short uh, number of verses this morning that we're studying is this. He explains that there are some who are especially gifted to the singleness as a way of life. The singleness that he is experiencing, going from place to place as an itinerant missionary, the uh, the singleness that others uh, seem prepared to experience in life is not something that everyone is capable of doing. Notice that he says in verse 7, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. God gives spiritual gifts to people. When you have become a Christian, you've given your life to him, not only does he wake you up from your spiritual deadness and set you, set you free from the slave master of sin, but then he saves you into service to him. He, he makes you a part of his army. He makes you a part of his family. Now you get to walk in pace with Christ and you get to apply who you are to the, to the glory of his kingdom. And he gives you special gifts in order to accomplish that. We're going to study a great many of those gifts in depth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And some were referenced in the call to worship this morning in Romans 12. Sometimes we make too much of these spiritual gifts, I think. You might find brothers and sisters who obsess over these spiritual gifting tests, trying to figure out just which gift is their particular gift. Some who limit their service and say, well, I'm not going to serve in that area because that's not my spiritual gifting, and so I'll, I'll wait for somebody else who's got that spiritual gift to do that thing. Any heavenly good we can possibly do, whether we're gifted in that area or not, should really be seen as a spiritual gift of the Lord. <clears throat> Since it apart from the redemption of Christ and the shedding of his blood, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, apart from that, we could do nothing to please the Lord. So if anything that you do is pleasing, it is a spiritual gift of God. He has made it possible for you to be aligned with him properly. So sometimes we make a little bit too much of these spiritual gifts, but other times we don't make enough of them. You see, not all are equipped to handle some of the special challenges that life can throw at us. Spiritual gifts and abilities are not distributed to all in exactly the same way or to the same measure. There is God-ordained diversity in the church of Christ. And it is deeper than ethnicity. It is deeper than culture. It is deeper than economic status. There is a spiritual blessing that falls on some that doesn't fall on others. The kind of singleness that Paul proposes here, be as I am, remember he says, would only be possible if God ordained it and supplied the presence of mind and the self-control that would be needed to sustain that kind of singleness. Paul, of course, had that gift. I'm going to read to you Philippians 4, 11 through 13. This doesn't specifically speak about that gift, but it does talk about the presence of mind that shows that Paul, in his singleness, had that gift. Listen to these words. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
of facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is not Paul bragging upon himself. Paul's not saying, what's wrong with you guys? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Pick up the pace. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. Paul is saying that because God is my Savior and because anything good that comes from me comes by way of the Holy Spirit, then I can do whatever God puts in front of me. I can learn to be content in those circumstances. And some are especially gifted to be able to handle the circumstance of being alone and independent. How do you know if you have that gift, that calling of singleness? Here's a couple of things you might want to look for. If you have this gift, you are sexually pure in your conduct, in your thought life, in your appetite. Now, no one is perfect in this regard, but not everyone struggles with the same brand of rebellion and sin that everybody else struggles with. For some people, they might struggle with patience. They might struggle to love those whom they don't know well. They might struggle with generosity, but maybe they don't necessarily struggle with sexual temptation very much. So if you don't struggle very much at all with sexual temptation, then perhaps this is a gift that God has put upon your life. You are dedicated to using that singleness or that independence to honor the Lord. If that is true of you, then perhaps you have this gift. Now, some people just want to use their singleness for their own good. I know people who don't want to get married because they want to spend all their money on their own toys and their own passions and their own entertainments. If that is the case, then don't think that you have the gift of singleness just because you don't feel like you need to get married. If you have the gift of singleness from the Lord, it's, it's because God is preparing you for something great. And so this Holy Spirit gift of singleness comes along not only with a natural resistance to sexual temptation, but it comes with a, with a, a renewed desire to use your time in such a way that God benefits from it as well. Are we talking about nuns and monks here? No. We're not talking about abandonment of society. We're not talking about isolating yourself so that you might grow and become a super Christian away from the traps of the world. Vows of celibacy are wrong unless you are gifted in this way. Those who are gifted with this special spiritual gift are not single as an escape. They are not single looking for a reward or admiration from others, not doing it for pride. They're not single because they couldn't find someone and so, well, I guess I just might as well be single. They have a contentment in singleness. If you are not blessed with the gift of singleness, however, then strive to follow the pattern of Philippians 4, as Paul did. But don't deny yourself the defense that God has given to believers. Paul cautions that a Christian should choose marriage if their passions are too difficult for them to control. It is better to marry than to burn with passion, declares verse 9. Now, we spoke briefly of the dangers of passion at the beginning of the sermon, likening passion to a burning fire, to a raging storm, to a rushing whirlwind. Perhaps nowhere do we see the unrestrained power of passion more clearly and vividly than in the gravity of sexual desire. For many, it is an appetite without rival. It can skew the way that we look at the opposite sex. It can become grossly overemphasized in our lives. The desire for intimate contact with another can cripple our judgment. It can put us on a slippery slope of sin away from fellowship with our Lord. And so while glorifying God with our bodies through staying single is a wonderful scenario, if we are gifted with the ability to handle it, for the majority of us who are not gifted in that way, then we should give much prayer and consideration 
to the natural defense that God has given to us for this, which is the covenant of marriage. We should pursue a godly spouse. This does not mean that we should rush out and marry the first person that returns our glance or gives us their number, but this wisdom should impact our decision-making when it comes to the timing of marriage, for example. What are some of the criteria in modern days that determine when a young couple is ready to get married? Usually, you look at the, the checkbook, right? Do you have enough money to sustain yourselves on your own? You look at your maturity. Are you ready? Are you a, a real adult? Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you ready for the challenge of sacrificial love that must exist for a marriage to thrive? Are your other life goals fulfilled or on track to be fulfilled? Do you have a, your schooling finished? Is your job set up, your career? Have, have you started purchasing a home of your own? Do you have a place that you're renting consistently? Are your other life goals fulfilled? Now, these are all good things, right? These are not foolish questions to ask. But in our society, they are often asked to the exclusion of a very important question that Paul points to in this text. Here's the question. Will ignoring my desire to be married or delaying the opportunity to marry give me a greater cause to stumble in the area of purity and sexual immorality? Am I burning so badly that if I wait too long to get married, it's going to cause me to fall into wretched sin, which is going to impact my relationship with the Lord? As American Christians, perhaps we need to rearrange our priorities. We often delay marriage until all the pieces are in place to make it go smoothly in a pragmatic and practical sense. But do we give proper weight and consideration to how important it is to defend ourselves against sin? We can be too practical in weighing the information that would help us decide whether to get married or not. The Word of God doesn't say it is better not to marry until you have your college degree. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture does not say it is better not to marry until you own a home. But it does say it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Weigh that in your heart, Christian. Parents, you have a special role in helping your children to understand this reality. Let a text like this educate your leadership to your children in regards to preparing them to face the passions of the world and to seek a godly spouse. Educate your children about relationships Guide them with wisdom and keep close watch on them for they are like sheep in your own flock. Fathers, you are like shepherds to your children. Are you on the lookout for the wolves? Are you on the lookout for the lions and the bears that would put them at risk? Because of timidity, too many Christians as children learn all they know about relationships and dating and intimacy from their peers at school or from the media glowing in the front room than they do from their parents. That should not be so, moms and dads. Plant the seeds of wisdom before the garden is full of weeds competing for sun and soil, choking out what is good and productive. Be the one who shows your child what a godly relationship is supposed to be like. Set those goals in their hearts at a very young age. You don't have to wait till your kids are in high school before you start talking to your children about these things. Show them and give them examples from your marriage. Do your kids see you and your wife or your husband? Do they see you being affectionate to, the, to each other? Do they, sh they see a sense of love and, 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 and affection in that marriage covenant? Or do all they see of their mother and their father is, well, this is my responsibility and this is your responsibility and you're supposed to take them here and I'll, I'll tackle this. Do you date your spouse? Do you show your kids that a marriage is not just a business arrangement, but it is a, 
a classroom for love. It is a place where we learn the covenantal and steadfast love of our God by loving one another through the covenant of marriage. Parents, don't let your kids date unless they're mature enough to consider the weight and responsibility of marriage. What mistakes do we make that push our young ones into an environment where they will burn with passion prematurely? A couple of them uh, I'll list for you right now. We let our young ones date so soon that they don't have even an inkling of the maturity that they need to, to govern their decisions and their actions. Parents, you have the responsibility and the authority to tell your children when it's appropriate for them to start thinking about these things. We make dating too private. We allow our kids to text privately with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. We, we, uh, we give them opportunities to go out to the movies by themselves without a group. Friends, if you want to protect your children, make sure that any kind of courtship that they engage in is public in nature, that there is lots of accountability, that they are not afraid to be honest and open with you about what's going on in that relationship, for that relationship has boundaries that God has set, not that they are to set, but that God has set for them if they are believers. And mom and dad, here's another thing that you can do to guard your kid's heart in this respect. Be careful that you don't treat boyfriend or girlfriend as husband and wife to your, your child before they actually are covenanted with them. There can be a lot of confusion when you get so attached to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you make them so much a part of the family, integrating them with all the traditions and, and, and including them in so many of the family activities that your son or daughter might feel like they're already a part of the family and now they can't choose to walk away from that relationship if there's need to. If that person isn't godly, is not leading them in the right direction, they might feel hesitant because they don't want to mess up the family. So be cautious. Be involved with these relationships Give your wisdom to your children so that you're not counting on them to get that wisdom from people who probably are not being led by the Lord God. Friends, marriage is not a solution to passion, but it is a God-ordained means by which we can battle our passion. And this might, in some ways, sour the romantic notion of marriage for some. They might think, I don't want you to marry me because you just don't want to burn with passion anymore. I want you to marry me because you love me and all the details of me. I want you to celebrate me. And there's some truth to that, right? But shouldn't you want your spouse to marry you not just for you, but for the Lord? Shouldn't you want a husband or a wife who is marrying you because they love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they see an opportunity to love him even better by joining to you in this mission of the gospel? Can I maintain my focus on God as a single person? If the answer is yes, and don't worry about changing your marital status. If God calls you to it, then praise his name and do it with a singular fo focus that can enable you to do daring and faithful work to the kingdom. Can I maintain my focus on God as a single person? If the answer is no, then don't feel too burdened about that. Most people struggle to do so. Consider then the one means that God has provided as a holy alternative to fighting the perpetual battle with passion. Find a godly spouse that you might join yourself to someone who you can trust, someone who trusts God. Understand, the two options that are laid out for us here are clear. There are not three options. There are not four options. You cannot use the it is better to marry than burn with passion principle and then adapt it to other sinful things that you want to justify in your life. 
Don't click onto that computer screen later on when nobody else is around and think it's better to look at this than to burn with passion and maybe fall into physical sin with somebody else. Pornography is a sin, friends. And a Christian has no business engaging in that. Who authorized us to rewrite God's word and to say that it would be okay or better to commit this small sin instead of this greater sin? No, let us strive for holiness and purity. You cannot use the it is better to marry than to burn with passion principle to justify pursuing a homosexual relationship so long as it is monogamous. That is, that is the key argument that you're going to hear in our society today by people who want to identify with Christ but don't want to identify with his law. The argument is going around that what the New Testament really was saying when it said that homosexual is detestable to the Lord is that God doesn't like homosexuality that is promiscuous and that is non-committed, but if you get married, that it makes it okay. There's a, a man named Matthew Vines who is an apologist for the homosexual community right now. Be very aware of his false teaching. His handling of the word is absolutely disgraceful. He uses passages completely out of context to try to prop up his opinion with what seems to be the word of God. Friends, let the word of God speak plainly to you. Do not use this special situation here where God said it is better to marry to burn with passion. Don't try to cram that over the framework of justifying your favorite sins. May Jesus be your everything. Your everything when you are single. Your everything when you have all the time in the world. When you don't have to worry about pleasing somebody else or providing for their needs. Let God be your everything. But may he also be your everything when you are married. When you find somebody else who loves him better than they love you. And you want to join yourself to that person. To love them with a passionate love that is a reflection of the love that you've received from Jesus Christ. Love God with your everything within the covenant of marriage. The one path that you choose for these two godly options can both lead to his glory and to your blessing.